Hello and welcome back to Right Now. I'm Stephen Kent. There are a number of things you could call staples of American life, including baseball, triple stacked cheeseburgers, knockoff Chinese food, and very big guns. And you'd have to include in any such list vocal fantasies about a national divorce between red and blue states. We love talking about unity almost as much as we promote division. It's easy to forget, but even upstate New Yorkers feel they have nothing in common with Albany or New York City. Texans are always clamoring about going it alone as their own country, and when California is not blathering on about secession from the Union, they've got Northern California constantly trying to get a restraining order on everything south of Sacramento. And now, as of last week, we have five counties on the east bank of Oregon that have passed a non-binding vote to break away and become part of Idaho. Where will any of this go? Probably not anywhere. Oregon's legislature, Idaho's, and the U.S. Congress would all have to give it a green light. But it does have me thinking about how places change, about how culture doesn't stop just because of arbitrary lines on a map. Eastern Oregon is more like Idaho. Its people have more in common. Do they belong in the same sandbox with Portlandia? Probably not. But this entire American experiment is about making it work or packing your bags to go somewhere else and somewhere better. Before I introduce our guest this week, I have a quick favor to ask you. Please subscribe to the show here on YouTube or on your podcast app. You can also follow us on Twitter and like us on Facebook at RightlyAJ. Tell your friends, please. And if you want to shoot us a comment here on YouTube or on Twitter, I will probably respond because I can't help myself. So please be nice or else. All right. Now, today I've got two Massachusetts refugees on the show. My roving co-host, Brad Palumbo policy correspondent at the Foundation for Economic Education, and holy cow, Phil Labonte of the seminal medical metalcore band, All That Remains. Phil, it is so nice to have you on with us this morning. Thank you for having me. I appreciate it. Absolutely. So the other week I was driving and Not Alone from your breakout album, The Fall of Ideals, came on. And then later the day you were in my Twitter feed talking about the death penalty and why it sucks. And I just was like, this is perfect. We need to get Phil onto the show to talk about this story. Have you seen the thing about um, Oregoners wanting to break away and join Idaho? I have. Um, and I personally... I, I think I agree that it's probably not going to amount to much um, because of the fact, like you mentioned earlier, that Congress and uh, both state legislatures have to agree. Um, but I do think that it speaks to the the significant cultural difference that you get that I think is not so much a north or south, but an urban versus rural kind of uh, cult cultural difference. Can you tell us about your own personal experiences? I know that you, like me, packed up and moved out of Massachusetts. Yeah. So I, I lived in Massachusetts for thirty, the first 35 years of my life. And then uh, I moved to New Hampshire to get away from a lot of the legislation in Massachusetts because Massachusetts has uh, – significant uh, tax burden. They have significant uh, regulatory burden. Um, and New Hampshire is significantly different. There's no income tax. There's no uh, state uh, um, sales tax. So, you know, I moved to New Hampshire. I lived there for about 10 years. And at the beginning of this year, I actually left New Hampshire, um, at least temporarily, to uh, come down to Texas and uh, kind of 
stick my toes into the uh, Lone Star State and see if that was uh, more to my liking. And my understanding is that part of that decision, like you said, was like taxes, and then it was also gun laws. Like those sort of changed right underneath your nose, mostly because you were busy with your band. I mean, this is the kind of thing that happens to a lot of people. They live in a place, they get busy, they have lives, they have kids, and then just things change around them, and they don't even know when or how it happened. Uh, but I felt for you in that time because I think you ended up in a situation where, like, the guns that you owned, right, like, illegal under that state's yep. laws. Yeah, when I was 18, I got an SKS, which is a semi-automatic uh, 7.62 by 39, or semi-automatic rifle chambered in 7.62 by 39. It can accept a detachable magazine. And uh, they there was the assault weapons ban passed, and there was uh, also legislation about what Massachusetts used to have what they call an FID card. And I got that when I you know, turned 18 and got the rifle. But then uh, when I started looking into purchasing more guns and, and stuff, I found out that the FID card was no longer the, uh, the identification needed or the, the permit needed yeah. that they had gone to a, a significantly more complex uh, uh, licensing system where you could have you had to have a certain type of license to own a semi-automatic that could accept magazines you had to have a different kind if you wanted to carry a pistol and so i went through all of the the necessary classes and paid all the fees and then when i got to the issuing officer uh at my local city they just flat out told me yeah we i I requested a uh permit to carry and they flat out told me we don't give them out so essentially what he was saying is if you want to exercise your rights, you have to get a lawyer and you have to fight us in court. And I said, well, it's easier for me to move an hour up 91 into New Hampshire and not have to deal with any of this stuff, pay $10 to get my license as opposed to the, I think, $200 I had spent at that point uh, for the Massachusetts license to be denied. Um, so I just left, you know, so – and, and and that's that's that goes to what we were talking about earlier. You know, it's like the, there's there are the options of for people to leave the localities that they're in to find places that are more suitable, which is why, you know, the conversation in my this conversation, in my opinion, tends to lead to, you know, federalism. And the reason that we don't want to have the federal government passing blanket laws mm-hmm. for the whole country is because that option is taken away when you have a federal law. When you have states that can enact laws that are allegedly suited to that locality, fine. When you make it a federal law, you take the liberty to leave away from people. So in a way, what happened to you sounds like a real pain, right? You had to get a different license. You had to move states, all of this. But in a way, it's almost a good thing, right? Because the people of Massachusetts, you and I are both from there. We know what they support there. And it is a very progressive state, to put it politely. It's the People's Republic of Taxachusetts, (laughs) right? But that's ultimately what they vote for and what they want. Whereas in New Hampshire, you know, they've got a freedom-loving culture. And so you were able to go up there and get what you wanted and vote with your feet. So in a way, isn't that the system working? That is the system working. And, and I think that that's something that we should very, uh, we should closely guard because as long as that option is there, then we can have a population that is, uh, very different 
from, you know, individually uh, can exercise their rights. And if they don't want to live in a certain lifestyle, they can go somewhere else. When See, but you, my thing, though, again, like I mean, I said, to both of you guys, you've kind of talked about the ideal of federalism, and I, I support it as well. But I don't really feel like we do have federalism in a lot of cases. You can't just go to a certain state and order things the way that you want to in some ways. Californians cannot ban guns as much as they would like to. Like, if the majority of Californians wanted to do that, if people want to go to Texas and order their lives certain ways and maybe strip all people of the right to abortion, they can't they can. do it. Um, there are all sorts of ways in which we're barred from actually ordering our way, our lives the ways the majority would want. Um, in, in federalism is sort of imperfect, right? But that's where the line is sort of fuzzy for me. But that's because the way we have federalism right now is constrained by the Constitution and the Bill of Rights, and that's a good thing in many ways, right? We want federalism within a set of parameters. But there are a lot of areas. I mean, if Massachusetts wanted to, it could pass fully single-payer health care, paid for by the state, run by the state, full socialist health care. They won't do it because they want to stick the bill to the federal government, but they could. And I think we need more areas where they can do that. But the problem is, Phil, and I want to get your thoughts on this, in order to have a federalist system, and we have only a bit of federalism. Stephen's right. We have not, we have such a big federal government with such an expansive role that it really is crowding out a lot of it. But federalism requires sure. a spirit of tolerance. People in Massachusetts would have to be okay with Texans may doing things they don't like and, and vice never, versa. They never would. And I don't know about your experience, Phil, but most of the ones that I've met on both sides aren't. Um, I think that, I think as you get to, and this is, this, this is going to sound extremely partisan, but I think that, um, I think it plays out at least in, at least that's this, it's been my experience. Um, the more progressive people want to see progressive policies in place for other progressives, regardless of where it is. And I think that the people that tend to be more conservative or libertarian oriented are far more comfortable with a live and let live um, type of, uh, you know, or at least have a, a live and let live attitude. Um, and I think you're right. I don't think that that it is perfect, but I do think that the the protection of individual rights uh, from the, you know, the majority is a good thing. I think that the Bill of Rights protecting certain rights um, for everybody is a good thing. And I, especially seeing as there there is an an impulse on, I think it's fair to say both sides to take rights away from, you know, minorities of people. And that's not just, uh, you know, minorities that are, um, that are based on, uh, immutable characteristics, but in minorities of people that have, uh, you know, a minority view yeah, of the world. People with less power I think in, that their, in their state. Sure. Yeah. And I think that it's good that there's, there's protections for, for individuals. Yeah. And I agree, right? The first amendment shouldn't be up for debate, whether you're in California or Mississippi, yeah. free speech should be protected, but that's the point of the bill of rights. But on some of these issues like abortion and like guns, if California can't be California and Texas can't be Texas, can we really stay intact and, and, as a and so, union? Like, but the thing about that though, and like Phil was talking about live and let live attitudes. And I, I think that by and large people to the right of center do embrace that more. And particularly when it comes to law, like I don't see Republican. More governors. now. Right. I don't see a lot of Republican. More now. I, I think that historically it hasn't been that way. 
Yeah, like fretting about stuff that's going on in liberal states because it's not their problem. They're like, oh, you know what? If Massachusetts and California want to be that way, then come to our states and do business. But at the same time, the conservative cultural element, like Fox News and Newsmax and all that stuff, like they spend all day covering crazy stuff that goes on in blue states and communities because they're like the audience just loves being mad <laughs> about what people are doing in other communities. Right, but also those things do affect everyone, right? Culture does creep. Right. So the things that start out in academia and on campus and or in Los Angeles slowly make their way throughout society, you know, into the mainstream media, into Hollywood. And then it does percolate. So I think you're right. But I think there's there's something more to that. Phil, could well, I you- think that, that when you're when you're talking about like uh, cultural creep and stuff, uh, you know, Breitbart said Andrew Breitbart said, you know, politics is downstream from culture. And I think that that's something that people are more. That, that people on the right are realizing more um, that it is important to have at least input on the culture and that I think that the the cultural left has really been dictating the culture for the better part of the past 40 or 50 years and I think that it's starting to show in 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 politics uh, you know the 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 demonization of anything to the right of uh, of Bernie Sanders uh, is is something that I think that is is fairly obvious to most people. I mean, would you guys agree with that? Yeah, for sure. Yeah, I would. Phil, on your Twitter, you in your Twitter name express your support for the idea of an Article 5 Convention of the States. Yes. Uh, I have heard about this for years, mostly because I grew up watching or listening to conservative talk radio, and Glenn Beck used to always talk about holding a convention of states, particularly during the Obama mm-hmm. years. Uh, I don't hear too much about it anymore. But when I looked at your Twitter profile, it reminded me of it, and support for this idea is still really strong on the right. Could you explain to people who are not familiar with this, what is a convention of states under Article 5, and what would it do? Well, uh, Article 5 is, of the Constitution is where the amendment process is drawn drawn out in, in, uh, in the Constitution, the legal way to change the Constitution. Um, one of the methods that people don't realize is that or don't think about very often is an Article 5 convention of states where the several states can get together, call a convention, and if there are, if there are enough states that agree that they – I think it's – I think it's two thirds yeah. can make an amendment and then it takes the standard three quarters of the states to ratify it. But it's a method of rat of, of altering the constitution uh, without Washington DC's input. So it entirely circumvents Washington DC. Um, I like the idea of maybe adjusting the commerce clause or the necessary and proper mm-hmm. clause, anything that can, can really um, limit the federal government because I think that the federal government, so, so, I was, um, I was, yes. yeah, I was like 10 when the tea party launched. Right. So <laughs> let's, let's do a little bit of article okay. five for dummies. This would get Congress okay. out of the picture. And who, who exactly makes these yes. decisions? Who represents the states at a convention? So the state legislatures would send representatives to the convention. I'm, I think that it takes two thirds of yeah. the states to call the convention and the several states and 
if states don't want to send representatives, they don't have to. But I imagine that if there is a convention called, all the states would start saying, well, we have to send a representative. Yeah, because so it only takes heard. 32 states who agree to do this sure. for it to be called. Yeah. And so all of those holdout states would then presumably send delegates because you want to have a say left out. in how the constitution's going to be <laughs> ordered for the rest of the republic or yeah. at least until the next convention. Like it would be crazy for them yeah. not to send them. And then every state. Yeah can pass laws trying to bind their delegates to vote for certain things. Uh, but the big question among legal scholars has been whether or not state laws binding delegates for a federal convention uh, is actually binding. Um, so like the idea would be that like you send your delegates from New York and they're going to push for the abolition or destruction of the Second Amendment. But then they could actually go the other way when they get to the convention because they're free. And like that's why this is kind of scary to me, Phil, because I've heard this sure. talked about for a long time. Conservatives have this fantasy that the only thing that's going to happen at an Article 5 convention is going to be a balanced budget amendment. But I feel like it could you know, go you very well. You know, you say that, but all of the pushback that I've heard on on Twitter and, and you know, people tend to be extremely comfortable with pushback on Twitter. Um, <laughs> it tends to be from conservatives. It tends to be from conservatives because – and and this could be just because uh, people aren't you know aren't aware of the the uh, the process of uh, of of amending the constitution, but I hear consistently, no, we don't want to do that because California, and New York will get rid of the Second Amendment, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. Yeah, that's and, see, that's um, interesting. It's like the list of endorsements for the the Article Five Convention. I was just looking at it yesterday at one of the convention of the states org. It's just like every conservative celebrity that I could find. It's like Mark Levin, Sarah yeah. Palin, Sean Hannity, Charlie Kirk, Ron DeSantis. But Rubio, some of the groups, Bush, the Heritage Foundation has cautioned against this. Exactly. So like right, the academic class, back. the academic class is maybe like a little bit more wary of it. Well, I guess to hone in on some of these concerns, Phil, what would stop this from turning, say, say balanced budget amendment is the point of the convention. I think all of us would be down with that. But what's to stop it from turning into a runaway convention where all of a sudden the Fourth Amendment is up for debate, the First Amendment is up for debate the senate is up for debate what's to stop that i don't know i don't know i i have i've seen um a few people discussing it but i haven't looked into the arguments for and against uh whether or not a run runaway debate would happen well enough to comment on them so that's something that i don't want to to dip my toes into without having more more information about uh about what it is that people think uh, indicates that it would be or would not be a runaway convention. Yeah, so, and I, I think that that kind of brings it back you. to like the principle of the matter, whether or not it should be done. It's risky. It could go very badly for all sorts of different constitutional rights that we currently hold near and dear. It could also make really smart reforms to the way that government works. I mean, so like, for example, um, there's one left group a uh, progressive group called Wolfpack that they have all these different sort of wish list items for what would happen at such a convention. They want at this convention to use as bargaining chips, eliminating the electoral college and replacing it with a popular vote for the president. I'm not saying that these are necessarily good, by the way, but just like a couple of these where they would also then add uh, term limits to Supreme Court justice um, terms. They would also change um, the constitution to reflect uh, nonpartisan voting districts, so you could not have gerrymandering happen in any sort of context. They would also push for a 28th Amendment 
29th Amendment that would add a provision barring um, all of the gains made by like having money in politics. Uh, Overturning Citizens United. It would overturn and, and block Citizens United from being implemented. So like those are the items that could be done. You could say that some of this is like smart governance or updating the, the hardware of government. But then you're also just going to have people push for changing the very basic rights. This same group also wants for them to include- Yeah, I would, I would argue that, that yeah. the, the list that you're listing is very, very close to changing the basic rights. I mean, Citizens United is, is you know, that's that I, I personally, I think that was decided correctly, but- Well, know. also, I mean, just that laundry list sounds pretty, I, I think, benevolent, right? But if you think about, it would actually be done at a convention where you would have powerful interests and PACs and lobbyists on the phone. I mean, how could sure. something like that happen, Phil, and not end up skewing the political system- Towards some interests yeah. or some side. Yeah, I, I think that I think that I think that to think that that wouldn't be a danger is is probably horribly naive. So why do the risks? Um, are, why are the benefits outweighing the risks? I think that the the benefits of of having it outweigh the risk because right now we have a federal government that is entirely. Uh, it, it's not in any way uh, beholden to the to the population anymore. I mean, you you just had with with President Trump, you had four years of people screaming that Trump was illegitimate, making accusations about uh, foreign influence with with little uh, evidence, if any. Um, and and as soon as you know, President Biden gets into office, uh, a lot of those same people that were making those. Uh, accusations against the, against the Trump administration are now, you know, have made a 180 on on uh, their perspective on the power of government, et cetera. So I think that the federal government is entirely too powerful. And I think that anything that we can do to limit the federal government's power further, because the, the Constitution is supposed to be a, li- a list of the powers that the government has, and then the Bill of Rights is supposed to be a list of no's, and there are, are <laughs> we need more no's. People. Yeah, more no's, and we like, do. We need more. We obviously need more. Need more no's because we literally have the biggest, most powerful government in human history. We so do. I think that it's fairly. It, it does. Se- it does seem like you know something that we can laugh about, but it's also completely obvious that the the wording of the Constitution and the Bill of Rights is is to keep the government limited, and yet it is managed to become right. the most powerful government and largest government in human history. And so like an example of this, and it's just sort of a minor thing that would be considered to be benign by most observers. It was back in 2018, the House passed the National Suicide Hotline Improvement Act. It was unanimous except for one person being former representative now, Justin Amash. And he got like called out for this. Why would Justin Amash say no to a National Suicide Hotline Act? And he just responded and just said, it's another good idea with no constitutional basis. There is no right or reason for the government to do this at the federal level, so I vote no. And then he responded by saying, if you want to make like provisions for this, Article 5 provides for the amendment process, and many people today believe the Constitution is a living document. I do not. And I think you feel the same way. It's not a living document, and the only principled way to update it is to use the means that we have, which is the convention. I I fully agree. The the idea that the Constitution is a living document, I I think is, I mean, without getting 
too presumptuous. I think it's ridiculous. Uh, you know, the means to, to amend the Constitution is in the Constitution itself. If the Constitution were a living document, why would there be a means in the Constitution to amend it, first of all? And second of all, why would the, the means to amend it be so stringent? It's not easy to amend the Constitution, and that's by design. So the idea that you can just make laws that to skirt the Constitution and and that they that they're that it's legal is, in my opinion, ridiculous and and not honestly not worth taking seriously. But unfortunately, there yeah. have been too many uh, judges and and too many courts that have taken that concept seriously. So now we have yeah. to make believe. That but if um, I mean, if, if the Constitution is a living document, if the law can mean anything, it can it also means nothing at all, right? How can it safeguard things Absolutely. if it's completely flexible? But the, the thing I wonder, Absolutely. though, is in this whole conversation, Phil, to some extent, are we talking about a symptom when we should be talking about the cause? Because look, if you look at the polling, the American people are okay with limiting free speech, yeah. hate speech. The American yeah. people are going soft on the Second Amendment. The underlying issue of actually appreciating the, the structures from our founding that keep us free and preserve our limited government are waning with the public. And I wonder if all of this yes. isn't just a manifestation of that deeper problem. So some different approach, like a convention, it's not going to get us out of that mess, is it? No, it won't. And And I mean... What you're discussing, I like I, the record that uh, the song "Not Alone" that you referenced earlier. Uh, it, the record's called "The Fall of Ideals," and that's exactly what I was talking about on this record that came out in 2006. People do not look at the founding principles and the ideals that the United States was built upon the same way they did 50, 60 years ago, and there are too many people that will try to say that, oh, if you believe in the founding ideals, then you are a bad person and they'll call you all kinds of names and, and assume that you have all kinds of bad intention because you say that things like the freedom of speech is important. Um, you know, and so these ideals that were, that we're, that our country's founded on, they're important and they, they need to be explained and defended consistently, not just assumed to, and taken for granted. Phil, do you find that fans of your band, All That Remains, connect with some of the meanings of your songs and of your albums like Fall of Ideals? Do people actually read that much into it? And do they, do they talk to you about some of the, the responses that they feel about your music? Sometimes, but sometimes they get the wrong impression or, and, and I, I, I think that I'm probably not articulating it properly, properly when I say the wrong impression, because I don't know that when you're dealing with art, there is a right or a wrong impression, but they get a different impression than, than what my intent was. Um, I've had people come up to me and say that, uh, they are understood a song or a group of songs in a way that is entirely opposite to the way that I intended. And then they get very angry with me that, that I didn't, that I wasn't trying to say what they thought I was trying to say. Um, but frequently people do, uh, they do take the meanings and, and get pretty close to the mark, I guess. I mean, I'm, I don't write a lot of abstract lyrics. They tend to be fairly clear. Um, if you'll take the time to read them. Um, and, you know, there are times when I'm a little bit on the nose uh, about certain things. Um, and sometimes I'll, I'm a, I leave a little more room for, for, uh, for people to take away what they will. Um, but I think that it's, it's, I think that it's a good thing 
to allow people to to understand things the way that that or to to have the impression that they do and and allow the listener to uh to give meaning to the song um and that maybe you know because i look at it more like art than trying yeah. to uh trying to drive my my opinion to other people's it's not propaganda heads, so. but the point the point is yeah it is yeah but the point is is also important that most of the stuff in our culture is pushing a, a, an, another message in the opposite direction so i guess I, one thing I'm, I'm wondering just just hearing you talk about all this is how wide is that disparity how much are we behind on the cultural front in our music in our tv in our television Decades. right like is it just 95 to five in terms of the, the ideals that are embedded into this stuff? Probably. Yeah, probably. It's, it's, it's bad. It's really, 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 really bad. Um, most music, at least, and as far, as far as I can tell, most music is, and musicians are extremely, extremely left. Um, because I think that the, 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 the default dem liberal or default Democrat um, is kind of where the, the average citizen is. Um, I think that, uh, that, I mean, just, just today or just the other day I saw a punk rock band is doing concerts that if you are vaccinated, you get in for $18, but if you're not vaccinated, it's a thousand dollars. How can you call yourself punk rock when you're saying, if you do what the government says, it's 18 bucks, <laughs> but if you want to be an individual, it's a thousand dollars. So poor individuals, you know, beat it, get out of here. I, I, I can't see how that is in any way punk rock, but apparently that's what punk rock is today. Uh, yeah, I, I played you know, in the punk scene uh, so, for most of my, my early twenties and in college. And I would say the person with the least street cred among modern punks today uh, is Johnny Rotten of the Sex Pistols because he's the only person who still hates the government, <laughs> no matter yeah. who it is. And, and young punks just think he's just some, I don't know, just like some weird macho punk. And it's just bizarre to me that like, this is where mm. we are. Um, where you know, you, but the, you look at, it used to be where people would make fun of hot topic and, and be like, <laughs> Oh, ha 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 hot topic punks. But now that's every th yeah. every punk because it's only a look, <laughs> it's only a style. It's not an attitude. It's not really a lifestyle. It's it's literally, uh, you know, just a haircut and a t-shirt. It's it's entirely, mm -hmm. you know, uh, um, something that's. Do you marketed. think metal is better so, than punk in terms of like its politics and the fans who gravitate towards it? Because just like anecdotally, I always felt like when I no. when I go to metal shows, I always feel like I am among more conservative people. But when I read metal review websites, I then I'm like, I'm not so sure anymore. I think that there are a couple, see, there are a couple metal review websites, uh, some of the, a couple of the blogs that are extremely far left. Um, and I think that that is because of the way that media is. You hear about the same thing with the video game uh, media, oh, yeah. uh, very oh, yeah. far left meaning. <laughs> and I think that, and, and also at the New York Times. So I think really what it is, it's the, it's that, that relationship or the relationships that people build when you work, when you live in Brooklyn and you work in New York. And so you're, whether you're at the New York times or Kotaku or, or the metal blogs that are in the, you know, in the metal world and stuff, a lot of those people, if they don't work 
side by side or freelance for multiple sites. I know that there's a, there's one person, I'm not going to say her name, but she, she freelances for Vox and she's written for some of the metal blogs as well. Um, and so it's a lot of the same people. So obviously they have a lot of the same politics. Now, I don't think that it's, I don't think that it's broadly the metal world. I think that when, once you get out into the actual people going to shows, it's not as much, yeah. the uh the you know the the left but i think that when it comes to media it does mm-hmm. seem like that because it's all the same people it's and, and if it and by all the same people i mean it's it's the same culture because they hang out together they go to right. the bars together they're they're the whole schmoozing side of it they're the is cultural all, tastemakers you know and what they say so how is yeah, this exactly phil how has this impacted your career right because i follow you on twitter right nobody reading it can mistake where you're coming from on things no. which is fun for me no. but i'm saying if you're navigating the music industry uh the media the critics the executives how has that been for you to be so vocally going against the crowd has it has it adversely they impacted you they hate me like absolutely they 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 there have been people from blog from metal blogs that have gone out of their way to to tweet at my label to try and get us dropped. Uh, they they will not put a my name in print without being critical. Uh, they're, they're even when even when they say even when I, I will I will say things that they agree with. They'll be like, well, he's. They'll be like, well, we kind of agree with this, but this is why we still hate him. And, uh, they, they detest me, absolutely detest me. Yeah, it's like anytime you get a like a review fun. of an album, and they'll be like, the new the band All the Remains has a new album. You might know them from this controversy, and not their, from their this two, thing their that two, guy two, tweeted. Their two decades of uh, of albums they've been putting out. It's it's bizarre. It's truly bizarre to me. I I, I want to pivot real quick though back towards what we were talking about before we wrap up, because we could reorder the entire country under, you know, like a new Article 5 convention. We could reorder our rights. We could decide what kind of country we want to have under new terms. But I feel like one thing will always remain the same, which is big tech companies are never going to be reined in by this kind of stuff. You're still going to have the rules of the road determined for discourse, for trade, for commerce, by Facebook, by Amazon, by Twitter, they're still going to, to be setting the rules. And I worry about that a lot. Phil, do you share that concern? I do. I don't know what the right answer is because I'm extremely libertarian when it comes to, I mean, almost everything. I'm, I'm borderline anarchist um, when it comes to the way that I, I think the, that any type of government organization, or any type of government should be. <laughs> well, you know, I mean... The government's bad at things and stuff. And you can just like, it can be the government's bad at things and stuff, period. You can leave it like that. But so I, I don't know that what the answer is. Um, but I do, I am sympathetic to the argument that a lot of conservatives make when they say, look, libertarians, you're going to sit there and say that they need to be, you know, you can't have the government get involved. And then they're going to entirely snuff out your ideology through propaganda. So I am sympathetic to that. Um, I don't think that having the government get involved is, is a good thing, but I also don't think that there's a good answer Mm -hmm. because the, the, and, and Brad, you can probably speak to this. There, there is no, there's no limit to the amount of influence that algorithms can have on a population. People don't, uh, people don't make up their minds as on their own as much as they think they do. Yeah. 
Yeah. I mean, it's crazy how much power big tech has and will have. Um, but the problem is you look at the proposed solutions, right? And whether it's the extremists saying nationalize big tech or just the kind of conservatives saying repeal section 230. Either way, I, when you look at the details, it will empower the government. Uh, if I don't want Jack Dorsey dictating speech, I certainly don't want Elizabeth Warren uh, or, or Kamala Harris. Um, and I just don't really see a, a way out of it. And that's something that maybe um, you have thoughts on, but I had to explain this to somebody. I was having a conversation with a friend, right? Not political, not a partisan guy, doesn't work, just visiting us. And we were talking about a problem and I was pointing out the, the, the flaws in the progressive solution he was saying. And I just said, maybe the government can't fix this. And he just couldn't accept that answer, that there's not a collective solution to every problem that faces us. How often do you run into that? Uh, frequently. I feel like, I feel like when you're, you're talking to people that are, uh, of an extremely progressive mindset, I feel like I'm talking to a person that is very, very religious. I feel like I'm talking to someone that really, really, really believes in God and really, really loves their God. Um, so the, the idea, the concept of maybe your, your, maybe the government can't do this is like telling someone that believes in God, maybe God can't fix this problem. The reaction is the same. Um, so I, I, I don't know. And I don't know what you do about that because I mean, you, you're, I don't know if you've ever talked to someone that's really religious and been like, maybe God isn't real. And then they're, you know, you, <laughs> that just draws a wall there. You're not getting through that one, you know? Um, but Brad, you mentioned two thirty. I wanted to, I, I'm interested to hear your opinion about the way that, um, mm -hmm. the way that telecommunication companies are. So you can't, you know, you can't, AT&T can't say this person said something on our, on, on a conversation. And so we're going to kick them off the, the, the phone service. How do you, can you conceptualize a way to make sure that the, the social media companies or Google or whatever, uh, treats people the way that, uh, you know, phone companies are, are required to treat people? Is, is there something that you can, something that you could bring to the table that could, that could help to, produce that result? Right. I mean, they've talked about common carrier laws, and that would be outside of Section yeah. 230 being applied to, to big sure. tech. Um, the problem is that, I don't know, I don't know a ton about it. Some people are debating it. It's kind of in the early stages of an idea. I worry it would put us down the fairness doctrine path, right? When media was forced to present both sides and air them equally. Yeah. Um, and then it's like, well, ultimately, at the end of the day, with something like phone service, right? It's pretty easy for even the government to not mess up uh, inspecting something like that. But then fairness, right? Were you to regulate fairness or uh, bias neutrality onto a tech platform, who's going to decide what that is? FCC bureaucrats? Uh, because I know the people that work in Washington and the deep state, right? You want to call it a dramatic term, right? But it is an entrenched bureaucracy of progressive leaning people. They view some ideas yeah. as violence, some speech as dangerous, right? So they would be, they're of the same pool of the people that run the big tech. So I ultimately don't think you get very different outcomes. Yeah, I, I grew I, up, I, oh, go ahead, Phil, sorry. Well, I just, I, I understand what you're saying about fair, fairness doctrine. I do wish that, and this is again, this is this is more a wish than than thinking about uh, an actual working solution. But I do wish that you know the big tech companies or or whatever were more comfortable saying, "Well, look, 
people can say whatever they want as long as it's not actually inciting or threatening, then it's right. the reader's job to block and to ignore, uh, you know, things that they don't like to hear or whatever. Um, but I don't know that, uh, I think that I'm in the same boat with you, Brad. I don't know that there is a, a good solution. Look, I, I completely agree. I wish they would embrace that approach. The problem more so isn't the tech companies per se, because they're more, um, they're basically taking the temperature of the room and then going where they think they have to, because if they don't, the mob will come for them. Right. So there is this True. underlying mob of media critics, of journalists, of activists, of professors, of the kind of people that occupy Twitter, right? Demanding yeah. that they censor, demanding that they fact and it is check. A, and it's it, a vocal that's the minority problem. too. But that minority will boycott them, will protest them, will get them canceled, where people on the, on the right will do that sometimes on some social issues, right? But there's just not the same platform. And then most Americans are just disengaged from this stuff. So then you get the outcome dictated by the furthest extreme subpopulation. The, the reason that I am libertarian today, and I grew up conservative, and I made the change over the course of several years, is because I have come to embrace exactly what you both are talking about, which is there is not a solution to every single problem. And sometimes the medicine is worse than the sickness. And that, I think, is a good place to leave it, y'all. Thank you so much. Thank you. All right, well, that's just about it for our show this week. But we always like to end things with a little bit of good news and a thing we call positively. So before we round out, we will all share just a little bit of something that's on our mind that is making the world just a little bit better. Um, I will start. I want to personally congratulate my childhood friend Thomas on getting engaged over the weekend. Uh, my friend, you and Gerardo are going to do great things, and I am thrilled for you both because family is everything. The more people starting families in this country is a good thing. It ties us all together, makes for happier children, more stable citizens, and a better country altogether. And um, it just has to be said that like the rate of family formation in the LGBTQ community in the past couple of years, obviously since the floodgates were opened by the federal government uh, for it to actually happen, um, has been dramatic. And it's been a fantastic thing, I think, for everybody. Um, having that walled off to just certain Americans for so long, I think was hugely detrimental. Um, and I think one of the worst things the conservative movement ever did was try to guard the definition of what family is, uh, rather than just encourage everybody to form families because no people should be islands unto themselves. So I just wanted to wrap that up um, or throw that out there just for a happy Pride Month note. Um, and congratulations, Thomas. All right, Phil, what's on your mind, sir? Uh, well, I mean, after that, I feel like mine is, uh, is, is <laughs> lacking in the uh, hopeless. <laughs> what's hopeless wrong with you? There. I mean, like, well, you know, the thing is, like, <laughs> that's, that's such, a, a, such a personal and wholesome, uh, you know, perspective. Only, and I was thinking, personal I'm, and you know, I'm thinking, <laughs> yeah, well, and, I, and I'm here I am, like, thinking about, like, political things. And the best thing that I can come up with, I guess, right now, honestly, is uh, I guess I just want to give a shout out to, uh, James Lindsay and and New Discourses, the work that he's doing, um, yeah. trying to push back on on uh, some what I think are some really really bad ideas. So uh, he's doing he's doing uh, very good things, and and I would encourage everyone to follow New Discourses on 
on YouTube. James Lindsay on Twitter can be a little weird, so I don't know that I'm, I'm going to say that you should follow James on Twitter, but you should definitely follow New Discourses on uh, on YouTube and watch their videos. That's a it's, it's a good it's news. a great site, and I think it's a, a good example of somebody who like is joining the fight and willing to put their reputation on the line for something that is more important, um, which is the, <laughs> the fate of the country and all of the discourse that we have. So no, I think it's I think that's fantastic. It's, it's that sounds dramatic, but I can't help but say that I agree. It really like right. that that kind of the yeah. it and really is a, a a very big thing he's doing. And just to be clear for listeners, we're talking about critical race theory here, right? The, the very kind of toxic yeah. and and far left um, race essentialism, identity politics to the extreme. And here's hoping that goes away sometime soon. Uh, and so we're all going to need to do that kind of work. But mine is 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 just closer to home. It's more simple picnic yesterday with my boyfriend and our dog out in Alexandria. What do we see? We see kids playing with kites, no screens in sight, families without masks, people talking to each other, um, eating outdoors, just a small sign that that nature is starting to heal. People are starting to come out of their shells. I know you're in Texas, Phil, so maybe it's not like this, but we've been in Bleary Town for a long time. So it's great to see people finally starting to loosen up. I hate to go back to being See, you guys and your wholesome stuff here. (laughs) I mean, I hate to go (laughs) to be negative again, but I went uh, canoeing yesterday for Memorial Day to go out and spend the day with my family. And we went to Fairfax County Lakes to go get a canoe. And they had barred canoes from being rented as a COVID risk. And they were only allowing for rowboats to be rented because rowboats are not a COVID risk. Apparently their reason was that canoes were easier to flip and if they had to go out and rescue you, people could get sick. It's just, it's silly. Florida, Florida and Texas, guys. Florida and Texas. Listen, and Texas. it gets more attractive every Texas, day. gentlemen. Yeah, yeah. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to pack my bags and do exactly what both of y'all do, which is move one of these days. Phil, thanks so much for coming on the show today. Thanks. Brad, Thank it's always good much. to see you. That's it for this week on Right Now. We have a new show every Thursday. We hope you will join us. Hit that subscribe button, and we'll see you next time.